Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. Welcome to episode 11 of our podcast. We're going to be getting into a classic piano trio album by the Oscar Peterson Trio. It is the album entitled Night Train. Pretty excited to get into this one. But before we get into the album, we're going to get into our jazz question of the week. And the question of the week is a question that I have for Max this week. So first of all, Max, how, how are you doing this week? How's your week been? I'm doing, excuse me, I'm doing well. It's been a busy week. Um, I know you have been busy as well, but I'm ready to get back into it, going over these albums. This is a great one. This is one you and I, I know, have listened to for a long time, The Great Night Train from Oscar Peterson. And um, there's just so much to go over and talk about, and I'm looking forward to it. And it's good to be here. I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah, this was definitely an album that we were going to get to at some point in time. With me picking albums, it was going to be sooner rather than later. Um, so yeah, let's before we get into the album, um, the jazz question of the week that I have for you are, um, what are some of your favorite jazz history books or jazz biographies and uh, maybe some books that people should check out if they're into to jazz history? That's a great question. And there are so many books out there you could you know, find and go over and, and think about uh, reading. I mean, there's there's just so many. I would say there are kind of a few essential ones. Um, number one being Miles Davis's autobiography that um, he kind of wrote with Quincy Troop. And it's pretty raw. And a lot of it, I think, is just Miles talking. And, you know, Quincy Troop kind of just transcribed what Miles was saying and then put it in a book form. And it's a lot of interesting um, tidbits about Miles's life and his relationships with people like Charlie Parker. And, you know, Miles had a very um, transformative career, very full career. He kind of developed his sound and his musical approach every 10 years. And so you get a sense of that with this book. And he also, um, is kind of known for exaggerating and spreading lies and sp- spreading the truth. And so that's Miles Davis's autobiography to check out that, you know, you'll find out a lot of information that may or may not be true or may or may not be exaggerated, but it's definitely something to, to read and, and check out. And you just get a sense of who Miles was. There's quite a few curse words in there. Um, so it's very raw and very, you know, authentic. Um, but that's a good starting place. Another great person to really follow is the author Terry Teachout. And Terry Teachout, I believe he recently passed away a couple of months ago, but he has a number of great jazz biographies, one of them being about Duke, the great Duke Ellington. And so he has a book called Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. And he also wrote a book on Louis Armstrong that I mentioned um, on an earlier episode when we went over Satchmo at Pasadena, and that one is called Pops, um, and that's about Louis Armstrong, Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong. So those two books from Terry Teachout would be great, um, just great books to check out. And then there's definitely one more I would also suggest, and that is from the drummer Arthur Taylor. So a lot of times we'll, you know, we'll see Art Taylor's name as a a drummer on a record and an essential part of the rhythm section on a number of albums, but he also wrote a book called notes and tones. And so notes and tones is a series of 
musician to musician interviews that Arthur Taylor conducted. Um, and so it's just a transcription of those interviews one-on-one -on -one that he did with a lot of great players, including Art Blakey, Betty Carter, Kenny Clark, Miles Davis, Carmen McRae, Errol Garner, Lockjaw Davis, Dexter Gordon, the list goes on. So that's a really cool book. And it's somewhat, you know, controversial because of how honest it is. You really get a sense of what, you know, for instance, Max Roach thought about with the civil rights movement and what he wanted to do musically to um, kind of reflect that change. So there's just a lot of unique perspectives you can get from Arthur Taylor's notes and tones. Yeah, that's super interesting. That's like a kind of a different format to a, a jazz, um, you know, kind of jazz book. So I'll definitely, I want to check that one out for sure. Yeah, and then there's a couple others. Um, there's a great author in Kansas City named Chuck Haddock or Chuck Haddix, spelled H-A-D-D-I-X. And so he's got two books out, one called Kansas City Jazz from ragtime to bebop and it's basically just a, a history book of all the names all the players all the venues all the interactions and relationships of musicians from that time and um he has another book called bird that's about you know the life of charlie parker and it goes over a lot of about bird's time in kansas city and kind of the development of charlie parker and his sound and his just relationships he had so that's that's another one i would recommend bird and kansas city jazz from chuck haddix awesome yeah i'm definitely gonna have to check those out and i think um mentioning oscar peterson there's an uh he wrote an autobiography as well which i think you've read um yeah i've read most of that book um so that is called a jazz odyssey the life of oscar peterson and so that's an autobiography from Oscar that I read that is is so informational and you just get a sense of what he thought about piano players, about music. You you understand the the trajectory of his life, you know, the, the timeline that he went through in terms of his move from Canada and how much of an impact people like Norman Grant's had on his career as well as you get some really neat stories and I'll probably go over one or two of those as we go on in the podcast that I learned from that book. That's going to tie into this album. We're going to go over today. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to get into this album. Um, what I'm going to do with some of these books that Max recommended is make sure you follow us on Instagram, uh, the jazz jam podcast on Instagram. I'm going to, uh, Put a post or put in our stories um, this list that Max just gave us and put in links to buy all of them um, on Amazon or something. So if you're interested in these, go check out our Instagram and I'll have the list put up there um, so you can just check that out. Cool. Well, let's get into the history of this album a little bit. It was recorded on Verve Records, um, recorded in December of 1962, but then released in 1963. And uh, Norman Granz, who Max just mentioned, was the producer on the album, and he was Oscar's uh, manager as well. But he had sold um, Verve Records to uh, MGM by that point in time. And one thing to note is there are shorter tracks on the album because they wanted this album to be played on commercial radio. They wanted it to be accessible to 
a wider audience. And this is just a, a very influential jazz album, as we kind of already mentioned in, in the intro. Um, definitely as far as like jazz piano trio goes and kind of blues swing goes, this is one of the most prolific and influential albums and one of Oscar's um, most highly touted albums as well. So super excited to get in into it. Let's get into the personnel a little bit. Max, why don't you run us through the, the personnel on this album as you are our resident history geek (laughs) well i take that with honor Um, (laughs) so yeah so of course we're starting out with the great oscar peterson the piano player extraordinaire both just in jazz history and on this album if you don't know he's a canadian born piano player born in the year 1925 in montreal to west indies immigrants his father was a self-taught amateur musician and he played organ trumpet and piano and so that was a very early on influence to oscar and so oscar you know began playing by the age of five because he was surrounded by the music he started studying with a number of classical piano players and he was practicing four to six hours a day when he was you know a young guy really getting into the piano so a lot of his foundation he learned straight away as a kid and was was continually taking lessons um and by the age of 14 years old he had won the canadian national music competition and just after that he dropped out of high school as he got better and started getting into more uh jazz and pop music and he started touring with the great maynard ferguson so he dropped out of high school never graduated high school to pursue his music career from 1945 to 49 he worked with a trio and he recorded for victor records and that kind of those records showcased his love for boogie woogie and he has a huge fantastic swing feel and you can hear that on this album we're going to go over but you know that dates back to the late 40s where you can hear how prevalent his swing was and he was influenced by the likes of nat king cole and teddy wilson and as you've mentioned before on a previous episode, he was heavily influenced by the great Art Tatum. And later on, the two would become friends, he and Art Tatum. And a lot of times, Oscar was kind of intimidated. He would go and hear Art Tatum play, and you know he, he would not want to sit in. He would be very shy or bashful around Art Tatum. And he just adored everything that was Art Tatum. So it's just very interesting reading about the relationships between these different players. Um, And then we get into the relationship between Norman Grants and Oscar Peterson. So Norm Grants had heard him a couple of times in the mid to mid forties or so, and he wasn't that impressed, but in 1949 Grants heard Oscar Peterson play at a club in Canada, and he brought him down to the U S to play on a jazz at the Philharmonic concert. And, true story about that concert was that i gathered from reading oscar peterson's autobiography a jazz odyssey was that at that first concert that oscar peterson played at he was not technically legally supposed to be on a stage he did not have a work visa or the work visa was in process so what occurred was at that 49 jazz at the philharmonic concert um he had Oscar Peterson sit in, in the audience, and then he had the band already on stage playing 
and they, you know, made a stick out of it and said, does anybody here play piano? We need a piano player or something. And Oscar Peterson raised his hand. And so they brought him onto the stage. And so it looked like he was just an audience member. So that way they could get away with him not having a work visa at that moment. That's a crazy story. That's pretty funny. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of trickery (laughs) um, there. And, you know, that wasn't that uncommon. Um, They're going to find a way, you know, and Oscar Peterson's so fantastic of a musician that, you know, Norm Grants was was more or less doing the right thing, even though he really wasn't. So I don't know. Cool stories. Um, So after that concert, you know, I, I, I think everything legally was handled and he started touring the u.s a lot and there was a two-year period where i think it was just him and ray brown the bass player as a duo that toured hotels and um you know small small venues and then they added a third player by the early 1950s and so he continued to record and play with various players including herb ellis uh ray brown as i mentioned sam jones ed thickpin lewis hayes and then later in the 70s, started playing with cats like Joe Pass and Niels Hennings, Orsted Peterson, and Hop, as we call him. Um, and he's also just known as a great collaborator on many different records. There's a great album with O.P. and Ben Webster, and um, another one with Clark Terry. There's one with Mel Jackson. There's been some stuff with him and Herbie Hancock, Benny Green. And so he's just also, you can tell he's just an all-around great person as well to work with that's probably one of my favorite things about op oscar peterson if we say op we're referring to to oscar peterson um that's a kind of common uh nickname for him as well um that's just one of my favorite things is his massive discography he played with so many different people with his trio that um clark terry album that you mentioned it's called oscar peterson trio plus one i believe is the name of the album it's fantastic it's definitely worth checking out and I think personally, like one of my goals in life is like to buy as many Oscar Peterson records as I can, because there are so many, there are hundreds of records. So anytime I go to a record store and I see an Oscar Peterson record that I don't have, I pretty much always buy it. So I think I'm at like 30 or 40 Oscar Peterson records, but I'm like not even close to, to being <laughs> there. So yeah, it's, it's that's cool. pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, but yeah, so many different players, and he played a lot. He had a lot of cool albums that were like he played different songbooks. Like he'd play, um, you know, Duke Ellington on one songbook. He'd play um, one of the Gershwins on, you know, Cole Porter. There's an album, a Cole Porter album. So yep, just really cool how he'd he'd take an album, he'd do a whole songbook, or you know, take like the greatest hits of a songbook and make it into an album. So there's there's plenty of OP to check out, and plenty of him you know, playing different, uh, different composers, which is really cool as well. Yeah. OP released over 200 recordings and he also won seven Grammy awards and the lifetime achievement award from the recording Academy. And by the late nineties, his health was, was kind of declining. He had a stroke and he had bouts of issues with arthritis. And so he occasionally toured and performed on and off in his later years and uh he passed away in december of 2007 due to kidney failure so he he had a long you know pretty long career um and you know there's just so much opportunity to check out oscar peterson 
Yeah, definitely lucky that he he did have a, a super long career. Um, one thing I wanted to mention earlier is with the arthritis, um, you had mentioned that he grew up playing four or six hours a day. He actually developed arthritis when he was pretty young, but it's something that got worse as he got older. But it was noted that he struggled with arthritis even in like the 60s. He was already starting to struggle with arthritis and some of the, the gigs that he would be on, you know, he'd... Um, he'd be dealing with that so probably came from those four to six hours of playing when he was younger for sure yeah that's a good point i forgot to mention that yeah he it's something he dealt with on and off and and of course as you get older it gets worse so he was dealing with that and just you know had some other health issues that that um caught up to him in those later years yeah for sure but luckily he had a long life we talked about all the albums so plenty of op to be to be listened to so that's great max why don't you tell us about ray brown the prolific basis on the the album yeah if you ask me ray brown is probably one of the best upright bass players of the 20th century mm-hmm. um he was born in pittsburgh on october 13th 1926 started learning piano by the age of eight and then he noticed everyone else he knew was playing piano so he said i better take up a different instrument <laughs> and so <laughs> In high school, he took up the upright bass, and he, he started kind of working as a musician on the bass. He was influenced by the great Jimmy Blanton, who was the pioneer bassist for the Duke Ellington Orchestra in the early 40s, late 30s, early 40s. And uh, Ray Brown played in a lot of local bands before moving to New York City after high school. And he wanted to play on 52nd Street. At that time, everybody you could think of was playing on 52nd street and that's where the scene was. And so soon after he moved to New York, he was picked up almost immediately by the great Dizzy Gillespie, more or less on the spot. And he also performed with Art Tatum and Charlie Parker before starting a trio with the great Hank Jones. Um, And then as you know, he, he goes on, he meets Ella Fitzgerald and they, the two actually married briefly. And I know this was a question on a previous trivia mm-hmm. that you gave me. <laughs> so I actually knew that. And um, they were only married for about six years. And, you know, it was because they were working musicians. And so they were always away from home and not around each other. And it just it just took a toll. But it's a very unique relationship because they would also continue to perform on and off after they divorced. Then as he continues to play, Ray Brown becomes a member of Oscar Peterson's trio in uh, the 50s and all the way to 1965, where he becomes more of a session musician for Norman Grant's. After those those years, after the 1960s, Brown became kind of a studio musician in L.A., recording with such greats as Steely Dan. And then he toured and played with Lorendo Almeida, Gene Harris, Elvis Costello, Bobby Enriquez, Andre Previn. And he would tour with his own trio on and off until his death in the year 2002. And he actually died in his sleep after playing a round of golf before a gig he had in Indianapolis, Indiana. What a way. That's like, if you're going to go out, like that's not the worst way to go out. You know, like you're going out... Just had a round of golf. You're going to play. I mean, it sucks that the gig, you know, obviously he didn't make the gig. He didn't make the gig. <laughs> but he was obviously still playing. He was still playing golf. So, yeah. And he was he was old at that point. So, yeah, that's just it's cool because we've talked about so many jazz musicians and people in the history that have died young or in tragic ways. So it's good to hear about some musicians who 
lived long lives and died in, in old age. So that's the case with all three of, of these guys in the Oscar Peterson trio. That's right. Um, and there's just a huge discography. You'll see Ray Brown's name almost anywhere you can think of. And like I said, even with, uh, you know, rock and roll groups or, or classic rock groups like Steely Dan, he, he would record for. So he's kind of everywhere, all around great musician and just a, a good I see another guy that seemed like somebody that was so much fun to work with and he was always swinging and just a super great musician and seemingly a super great guy. Yeah, he's one of my favorite um, upright bass players to listen to for sure. I can definitely agree with that that sentiment, Max. All right. And then we got drummer Ed Thigpen, uh, who's the third member of the Oscar Peterson trio at the time of this album. He was born in Chicago in the year 1930. His father, Ben Thigpen, was a drummer, actually, and he performed with the great Andy Kirk. And if you don't know, Andy Kirk and his orchestra is a very important player in the development of the swing era. When we talk about the history of jazz music, it's a very important swing era band that was based out of Kansas City. And so, as you know, Kansas City at that time was kind of the hub for the, the swing feel and just the development of jazz at that time in the 30s late 20s 30s so ed thickpen himself um studied sociology and he pursued a music career after attending college in east st louis where i believe his, his dad was living at the time and ed thickpen would go on later to move to new york city and play with cats like cootie williams in 1951 to 52 and he just kept being a a prominent member in the scene in new york before replacing Herb Ellis in the Oscar Peterson trio in 1959. So prior to that, Oscar was just doing piano, guitar, and bass, and he did not have a drummer. And then in 59, when Herb Ellis left, who's a very swinging, very straight-ahead, great guitar player, OP did not want to replace him with another guitar player because he did not like any of the other guitar players nearly as much. So he was like, okay, let's just add a drummer. And so I think... One way or another, he came across Ed Thigpen, and that's how he became a member of the Oscar Peterson Trio. Um, he stayed there until 1965. He went on to tour with Ella Fitzgerald until 1972, when he moved to Copenhagen following several other American expatriate jazz musicians. So if you don't know, around the 60s, early 70s, a lot of swing or straight-ahead jazz players moved overseas to Europe to perform because there were just a, an abundance of opportunities for them to perform. Whereas in the States, the rise of rock and roll limited their opportunities. And so they moved overseas to play more and more gigs. And so Ed Thigpen did that as well. And um, he would go on to play with people like Kenny Drew, Thad Jones, Inhop, Clark Terry, Lockjaw Davis, and so many more. And he continued to play until he passed away in 2010 due to heart and lung problem, problems, excuse me, after suffering from Parkinson's disease. Yeah, so he lived a, a long life as well. Um, he died when he was 80, so, you know, he was, he was an older guy. Um, but, yeah, Ed Thigpen, it's one thing that's really cool is that a lot of times in jazz you get kind of like rotating casts, and guys who are on the same record label will play together a lot, but... You know, not always in bands. There are some bands that kind of stick out to me. Um, when you think of like, 
you know, maybe the Cannonball Adderley Quintet or the Miles Davis Quintet, some of those groups that have a little bit more longevity. But I think that that's one thing that's really cool about the Oscar Peterson trio is that they did have some longevity. And there's a, a stint of years where it's these three guys playing together and we get a string of albums with them. So you kind of get to get familiarized with their sound and, you know, get to hear them throughout the years a little bit. So I think that that's one really cool thing. And one thing that we don't always get in jazz is a, a band that really stays together for a while. So I, I really enjoy that about, about the trio. That's right. And, you know, a cool thing about Ed Thigpen and specifically the relationship between Ed Thigpen and you and me is that you and I have actually played with Caitlin Thigpen, Ed Thigpen's nephew. Is yeah, that his nephew. We... Yeah. So that was kind of we, we had a couple gigs with Ed Thigpen's nephew that we, we called for because we needed a drummer. And um, that was kind of a really neat experience just playing with, you know, the the extended family of a a jazz legend and yeah. that was it's just a really neat uh, connection we had yeah he went to the same school as max at ecu for for undergrad i don't know if he still plays i don't know what he's up to but yeah it was fun getting to to play with him and just yeah i guess he knew um his uncle and had talked to you know spent time with him so it was cool to get to to hear about that for sure yeah you know the, all all throughout those experiences you'll get different connections like that and it's just great to see and i love ed thigpen's playing and it was fun playing with um caitlin thigpen as well yeah for sure well let's get into the album itself the first track on the album is the title track entitled night train uh, max why don't you tell us a little bit about the the tune night train itself well it's got a kind of a complicated history it was first recorded under the title night train by saxophonist jimmy forrest who is a originally a st louis missouri cat and kind of a prominent influence of mine i love jimmy forrest so he recorded that track night train in 1951 but prior to that he was in duke ellington's band for a little bit and the main riff to night train actually comes from a main riff idea from the Duke Ellington Orchestra from two compositions, one called That's the Blues, Old Man, and another one called Happy-Go-Lucky Local. And so I think on this, at least a CD version, a lot of times you'll see Night Train, and then in parentheses, it'll say Happy-Go-Lucky Local. Yep. And that's yeah, and that's because it's kind of two different compositions into one. And so Jimmy Forrest basically took the main... Um, riff idea from that happy-go-lucky local duke ellington composition and he just kind of added to it he added stops and and kind of an opening intro lick and so that original riff plus the couple of things that jimmy force added to it became night train and jimmy force record uh of that song is kind of more of an r&b pop style than a straight ahead swing style and so it sold a lot of records because it was kind of popular. And so OP is is kind of doing both Happy Go Lucky Local and Night Train at the same time. Yeah. It's kind of kind of a way to think about it. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting um history. And there and that definitely happens in jazz where you'll hear guys take a riff or an idea from one song and kind of use it for a melody or a contrafactor things like that so it's definitely happened before in jazz so i think that's an in interesting uh thing that happens getting into the tune itself i think one thing that stands out to me right off the get-go is just op's 
swing feel. It's just so incredible. It's so evident, even from the first four bars of the tune. Um, so I think that that stands out to me. There's really great dynamics in the second part of the head. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is at 57 seconds during the stops, um, OP crescendos each line individually, and then he crescendos the, the rest of the phrase all the way into the solos. And it's just super musical, and especially like the way that OP uses the piano he's just so musical with his approach and so swinging so i really like that you know you can listen for that at 57 seconds you can hear how he um, really adds the dynamics into the lines that he's playing and builds into that solo there absolutely dynamics are a key part to everything op is doing i do want to mention you know real quick it is a 12 bar blues and um op is doing it in the key of g and a lot of times this is played in B flat or sometimes F or E flat, um, but he's doing it in G. And there's a couple other tracks on here that are in the key of G, and I really dig that. I really like that. Yeah, and I think OP likes the key of G maybe more than some other jazz musicians. I mean, I, it's a good key, but you might see other guys, you know, like Jimmy Smith would rather play in probably C or F and not so much G. Um, but you see uh, Oscar go to G a lot in songs that aren't typically in G. Sometimes he'll play him in G. So I think that's a good good point there, Max. Yeah, and I like doing Night Train in G because OP did it on this album. It just it, it and it's kind of a gospel key as well. Mm-hmm. So it's just you know it just feels good too, and um, I just really dig that they're doing it in G. And like you said, nice dynamics all throughout. The bass line is also very swinging. And you can hear this kind of cymbal sizzle mm. from Ed Thigpen that at, that keeps coming up as you listen to the album at the start of, of each solo from the piano. And so to me, that cymbal sizzle um, is just so iconic. And it, that is a key part to this album. And I just love listening for that. I think Did that you- it's a, a very key part of the oscar peterson trio sound like you kind of it kind of is very characteristic of ed digman's playing and especially with the trio like they have a very specific sound it's kind of easy we talked about like recognizing like saxophone players or things i think their sound as a trio has got its own very unique style to it so it's you know that's one of the things that adds into that as well as obviously oscar and ray brown's playings they have their own unique styles but i think as a trio they collectively have a very unique style and that is definitely a layer of it absolutely um and then uh, as you keep listening all you hear is style from oscar peterson you know there's some grace notes almost at 130 to 133 um the head riff kind of comes back in at 155 as a divider between the key solo and the bass solo and i love that sort of arranging that oscar peterson is kind of known for yeah, I definitely love that ranging. I want to touch on something that you said. That section from 130 to 133, um, his blues lines are just so swinging, and he just he he swings harder than most other people. And one thing that I want to point out is one thing that he does super often is at 132 he really lays back on the beat. So that's like when you're swinging, obviously there's this push and pull on the beat. But one thing that Oscar does is what's called laying back on the beat, which is where you're playing behind the beat, but you're doing it intentionally. And so he does that there. 
and he does it so well it just adds a lot of depth to the swing feel into the pocket when you you're able to lay back on the beat like that and really like swing a little bit harder from from doing that so i yeah definitely that that riff that you pointed out there i want to point point out that oscar's laying back on that which really adds to the feel there yeah as you listen to op you'll you'll get a sense of how he is so terrific at pushing and pulling the beat and that's one of those moments and it'll come up over and over and over again and that is the swing effect that you don't get from every player um, and that's a key thing to listen to when you're listening to op and then as it goes on you get a ray brown bass solo and it starts unaccompanied and i love how open it feels and ray brown is just you know open to to play what he wants and it's just a neat part to the beginning of that solo yeah and i to kind of feed off of that one thing that i really like that ray does is he plays a lick and then he kind of gives it some space to breathe even though there's no one else playing like he's not afraid to use space and there just be complete silence you know because that that silence can speak as much as what you're playing at times so i really like ray brown's approach there and how he how he does that yeah it's not about the notes that you play it's about the notes that you don't play yeah. And so that's a key aspect to, you know, really great jazz improvisers is their use of space and how well they input space in between certain ideas for uh, effect, whether emotional or, or improvisatory. In some way, you know, it, again, it, it, the swing feel is, is both how you play your eighth notes and, and your feeling, but also it's about the space in between the notes that you're playing. And that's what dictates the push and pull even more so is the space in between the notes, not the notes themselves. Um, that's so, well said. Yeah, well, I've had some time to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that, that's a key thing to listen for as Ray Brown starts his solo. Um, and in the last part of the form, uh, it, it's also kind of unaccompanied. He starts to take up some kind of stop time interlude sections. And there's no drums during the first full chorus of the bass solo, but the brushes enter in the second chorus. So it's neat to hear what Ed Thigpen is doing behind the bass. And I love Ed's playing behind Ray Brown's solo. And there's also no piano um, during, I can't remember if it's the first and second or at least the, the first chorus at all. So it's, it's, it's just really open. During the first chorus, there is piano. So there's okay. like a bit of like a call and response between the bass and the piano in the first uh solo section and one thing that ray brown does during that section is he uses some like really some bends that are just really tasteful and they're like kind of subtle but it's just really tasteful and he's just you can tell that he's just his style and his technique is so good um but yeah like max said the, then the second half of the solo op cuts out the piano cuts out and it's just bass and drums and one thing that i really like that um that ray brown does is he kind of keeps using these like pedal notes to come back to and um it's cool as a rhythmic idea but it's also highlighting the form as well the blues form so he's using the one and the four so he plays he'll play like a lick and they'll go doom doom so it's just it's cool it's rhythmic it keeps the form he's just it's just a really cool technique and it gives it that that swing feel to it as well that we talked about that they're so so good at yeah, it's always swinging, and I would also say it's also kind of riff-oriented, which is mm -hmm. the Kansas City style, you know, really in-the-pocket swing effect 
that um, I think Ray Brown is pulling from a little bit here. And then after that bass solo, OP comes back in and has kind of a second solo. And this is more of a boogie-woogie feel. So if you listen for that left hand, you get the sense of that boogie-woogie influence, the James P. Johnson sort of thing. Um, I mean, there's so much to talk about there. Um, did you hear that? What did you think about that That kind of almost second piano solo? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you can definitely get the left-hand stride or boogie-woogie, as we, we would call it, which is just where your left hand is kind of striding up and down um, the piano like a James Johnson, Fats Waller, Art Tatum, you know, that stride feel. Um, and it's something that Oscar's really good at. So yeah, it's cool that they incorporate that in, in that second solo, the way that they come back in together after race solo is just so hard hitting. It swings so hard. They're so, they're so tight. They're so together. It's kind of what I talked about earlier. Like they've had time as a band to kind of get that chemistry going. And it's really evident on this album with how they execute, you know, these arrangements. And then they do a shout section. And so there's another chorus of, of piano that's very rhythmic and that's kind of reminiscent of a south shout section, excuse me, from a big band chart. And so you can hear how well of an arranger OP is. And I know specifically during those two, three years where he was touring just as a duo and sometimes as it went on with a trio with guitar, they would spend, you know, their days, their time during the day working on arrangements and working on tunes in different ways to arrange songs rather than just learn heads and play solos. It was a whole different dynamic and it really makes for a succinct sound and a group that clearly works and plays well together. Yeah. And that's a great point. I think that's something about this album because if we're being completely honest, like this album is pretty much just all blues stuff. There's some a little bit of some different stuff. Some the ballads are a little bit different and the last song's a little bit different, but it's pretty much just all different like blues songs and blues forms, whether it be a 12 bar or there is an 8 bar in there as well. It but the thing that makes this album what it is is their chemistry and the arranging. And I think that that's like the songs, although they're different blues songs, they're arranged so well that they showcase so much of their style and OP's ability and all of their abilities. So I think that's a really good point there is that they could take a blues song and play it in 20 different ways and 20 different arrangements. And it's just super interesting and complex and swinging super hard. So I think that's a really good point there, Max. Yeah. And you know, as they, as they go out on this track, they have a nice dynamic build during the head out and it just goes right into a cool kind of softer, easy listening ending. And so the movement of dynamics that we were talking about earlier, you can hear that at the end of Night Train as well. Yeah, I, I really like this ending. It kind of just ends with the piano and the bass playing one note at a time together. Like, I think it's four or five notes, you know. Um, and it's just like a, a cool way to, to end the song. And it just speaks to that arranging. It's obviously well thought out. Yep. All right. Are we ready to move on to track number two? Yeah, let's get into the infamous track. Maybe not infamous, just famous. Um, CJM <laughs> Blues, which is uh, written by Duke Ellington. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, this one, Max? Yeah, so, you know, they're they're sticking with the blues. This is another 12-bar blues here. They're in the key of C because it is called CJM Blues. <laughs> so hopefully they'll stay in C, and that's play what they do. Play it in do. G. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just play CJM and G. Um, as you mentioned, it is originally kind of composed by Duke Ellington, Uh originally kind of 1942 is the year we're thinking 
But many people say that Barney Biggert, the clarinet and sometimes tenor sax player, actually came up with the riff idea that is the melody to ah, see jam blues. That's what we were talking about. See, it happens a lot. Yeah, it's another thing where, you know, it's may not be what it says on the paper, who originally wrote it or who originally published it or who originally came up with it. So I don't know who originally came up with Sea Jam Blues, but on paper it says Duke and some say Barney Biggard. And if you don't know, it's just uh, a melody based on the one and the five. And it's just two notes, um, G and C, and you just repeat G, 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 C. So that's all the melody is. And later on, it was adapted um, to also include lyrics. And that version is called Duke's Place. So there are lyrics added to it um, after it became kind of a, a popular riff blues tune. It is one of the most simple compositions when you think of the melody. But it just goes to show that like the melody, you don't have to write like the most complicated bebop lines in a melody. You could literally play one note. I mean, there are like one note samba and thing like that. Yep. You know, and it's this one's just two notes. Literally the entire melody is two notes, but it's still swinging. And like, so I think this just goes to show that sometimes simpler is 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 better and so yeah this is the one of the most simple or melodies you'll ever hear super easy to learn so if you've got any sense of rhythm you can learn it i think everyone can play c jam blues i think which is a good thing yeah Um, exactly you know that that's a great starting place if you want to learn some some basic jazz tunes and i don't mean that in the sense that it's less than i just mean that's a great starting place exactly Um, yep and players of all calibers can can work on c jam blues yeah uh and then with this arrangement you know again we get some arranging from the op trio it's there's a nice eight bar intro from the walking bass and then the drums and then op comes in um and it's kind of like they started almost on the fifth bar of the form and then when op comes in it's the top of the 12 bar blues form um and he comes in with that two note head and you can hear right away ray brown's swing you know his feel and just his drive on the instrument it just comes out to me so much at the beginning of this track during the melody and right into the solos and also it's key to note that the tempo is not super fast you'll hear op play it later on in his career really really fast um extremely fast just burning super hard yeah here it's kind of a little slower. It's, it's not up, slow, upbeat, by any means. but it's not like burning. I'd call it upbeat. And so there are like some jazz delineation. When we talk about tempos, there's upbeat, which would be, you know, like it's, mo- it's, you know, it's moving. But then there's burning, which is when you get up to like some really faster tempos and you think of like bebop things and things that are a burning tempo would be, you know, that what we were talking about with some of the later recordings of CGM Blues. Yeah. Something like 300 to 330 beats per minute is kind of burning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you can you can hear the differences in tempo from this track versus other versions. Um, and at the start of the solo, they do a stop time, the first four bars, and Oscar takes it. And so the rhythm section cuts out during those four bars, and Oscar just does solo. But this one does not take up the first four bars of the form. It's just like an added four-bar interlude of unaccompanied solo stop time. And then when the band comes back in, it's the start of the form. So that's a little different than what you'd expect. Usually you would do that those four-bar breaks or interludes 
as part of the form. Here they don't. They do it as kind of an interlude in between the different choruses. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely well arranged. And one thing that I think is cool is you can hear um, Oscar humming along during that four-bar break. And it's easier to hear that there because there's no one else playing. But that's something that Oscar would do a lot. And you can hear it. If you're listening to this in headphones, you'll hear Oscar do that a good amount um, throughout the album. And he would he would do that fairly often. So That's right. And the cymbal sizzle comes out to me again when the rhythm section comes back in. Um, and they, they, they only do those four-bar interludes four times, and then it's straight ahead after that. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to point out um, that like stuck out to me is during that first four-bar break, he really accents the note um, on beat three of the second measure of the break, and that's the note is C that he's playing there. So when he gets to that C, he really accents that C in the line. And I think that's just kind of clever because it is C jam blues. So listen to that break and you can hear him. He plays the line. And on that third beat of the second measure, he's like super accents the the C that he's playing there. So I, I don't know if it's super on purpose that it is a C, but it, it's just it's a cool, uh, cool thing that Oscar does there. If you didn't know, we are in the key of C. On yes. C jam yeah. Blues. And he's going to make sure you know <laughs> that's C right there. Really nice and accented for you. That is a clever moment, um, whether it was intentional or not. So it's great to hear that. And I'd say in general, Opie is just so swinging. The top, the excuse me, stop times are filled very nicely. He has a great dynamic touch. Some ideas are pretty typical that you'd hear from OP, and you can hear him use these same ideas in later recordings of C Jam Blues um, that he does both in live concerts and on on records. And there's just some really cool stuff that he does during those stop time bars. Um, and like I said, they happen four times. The last one to me at 125 reminds me of something Ray Charles would play. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's just some of it is is kind of almost, uh, I don't know what to say, but it's just not necessarily only straight ahead swing ideas. It's it's kind of some early R&B, really blues, really boogie-woogie influence. It's a mixture of a lot of things during those OP stop times. Yeah, definitely. There is a lot of stuff that when OP is really in like the blues stuff, some of that stuff reminds me of, and there are albums where Ray Charles will play like blues, jazz, piano stuff. And some of that sounds like some of the more bluesy Oscar Peterson stuff. So there definitely are some, some similarities there. I definitely um, get what you're saying there. I had the same exact note. His swing is just so ridiculously good and it's so deep. Um, one thing that he does is uh, during the four bar break at 109, he uses one note yet it's still so swinging, like just super duper swinging. And I just, we can go back. Max tells us all the time. We've heard it. If you've been listening to this podcast, repeat the one note. Just play the one note if you want to play one note. It's still swinging. And if OP says it's okay to do it, it's okay to do it. So Max has told us it's okay. And now OP is telling us it's okay. And so you can swing hard just playing one note. And OP is is showing you that right there. I appreciate the... um the praise (laughs) uh and and that's so true because you can hear it from these guys who are some of the best at at playing this music or playing music in general that they're they're so great at developing ideas and just messing around with you know the simplicity of of just one or two notes and building it from there we should not be afraid to repeat notes as improvisers um i don't know sometimes we think 
we really need to, to play more sometimes than we actually need to. Um, so food for thought. And then as it goes on, I think the idea at 208 is pretty riff based. And there's another moment where it screams Kansas City style to me. And he plays that often in later recordings as well. There's also some, some great lines at 230 to 254. And there it's kind of much more bop oriented. So you can hear the development in jazz just from everything that OP is doing. Yeah, for sure. There's uh, two things I want to mention that I want to get to that section that you talked about, that kind of Kansas City swing style thing. First is that um, the way that Ed comes in and out, Ed Thigpen on the drums, he comes in and out of the breaks. It just stands out to me. He's just, it's so crisp and he's really driving the swing really well. And these guys are just so tight that the way he comes in and out of the breaks, sometimes he'll do pickups back into the breaks and like um, maybe a rim shot out of the breaks. And it's just, it's super musical. It drives the swing super well and it's just super tight. So I want to give Ed some credit where it's due there because it can be easy to overlook that stuff and it's just super, super well done. Um, there's a run from 201 to 204 and my notes just says hot damn in all caps on that one. So that run is, is really killing from Oscar. And then if you listen to that section that Max was talking about from 207 to 230, that kind of Kansas City kind of um, I rhythmic idea there, you can tell that the OP is improvising that. It's not something that's super arranged in the song. And that OP does the idea like twice. And then the group starts to hear that and they start to follow along with them because the first few times Ed doesn't play the hits with them. Like the first time he doesn't play them, the second time he doesn't play them. But by the time they get to the third time that they're doing that kind of rhythmic idea, Ed and Ray are kind of, they kind of start to chime in on it as well. So I think it just shows their communication and their musicality that they're just listening. It sounds like something that was arranged, but I don't think it was actually arranged. Um, I think it was something that OP kind of, improvised there and you know a, a kind of common KC kind of thing to do but it's something that they listened and heard and then played as well so I, I really like that bit of communication there from them 90% of playing is listening yeah. so there you know that the, the two cats accompanying OP were listening to what he was doing and went with it and that's how you develop this music um, in the moment it's you got to be listening to what everyone else is doing around you you don't always have to go with them because sometimes it could be too cliche if you do it every time but a moment like that is just a prime example of how you know listening is such an important aspect of playing and that's a key moment to listen for yeah and, and then I, yeah it's almost like with oscar they do this they do it often it's almost like on the spot arranging like Oscar's so talented and he's got so many different ideas that a lot of times you'll hear in like live recordings and stuff they're just following Oscar Oscar will do something and they're just you know they'll follow along and so it's almost this on the spot arranging which is really musical it's just comes it's really soulful obviously it's coming from the soul if you're able to do that you know on the spot and not just something that's super pre-thought out it's a reflection of your yourself and your emotions and musicality at the time so I, I really enjoy it absolutely that's why the album is called night train dash the oscar peterson trio yep. not night train dash the oscar peter or night train dash oscar peterson it's yep. because they are they are a group and you can hear how well they play together and how just supreme their playing is with one another in those moments and that's why it's a group not oscar peterson with these other guys that are just backing him up they you know they're an ensemble yep 
another ensemble moment to listen for is how OP uh, plays the head out. Um, so they do it two choruses. The first time it's kind of more chordal. And so he's adding notes on top of the basic um, two notes and, and creating more of a, a chordal sound with the melody. And then the second chorus is just the main notes. And so listen for the, the different treatments OP is playing on the piano of the main melody during those final two choruses of the head out. And then there's a final drum cymbal hit to, to end the song. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think the dynamics on the way out are, um, they kind of, they do this thing pretty often. And I think we like to do it as well. And it's pretty common, but they bring the dynamics down on like the head out. So it's definitely something to listen for. It's something that they do fairly often on the album is kind of bring it kind of back out of that kind of hard driving swing into the, the melody. Well, cool. Let's get into the third track on the album um, entitled Georgia on my mind. Max, why don't you tell us a little bit about the the history of the the tune before we get into the recording itself? Yeah, this tune comes from the year 1930, written by Hoagy Carmichael. We've mentioned him before, one of the preeminent, prominent songwriters of this great music. Um, and it was either originally written for his sister, or he also knew Frankie Trumbauer, the great sax player. Um, and apparently Trumbauer suggested that Hokey Carmichael write a song about the state of Georgia. So this is either about Hokey's sister or about the state of Georgia. And either way, it's on his mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It's a great tune. Ray Charles is really known for uh, covering it. And if you don't know, it's basically an AABA form. Um, they, uh, it's kind of in a minor key as well. So it's just one of those fundamental tunes of jazz music and it's also kind of part of the great american songbook that we talk about all the time yeah it's it's cool because it's kind of crossed over from you know it is part of the great american songbook and it's crossed over from jazz into you know r&b with ray charles and i think one thing that's interesting to note is that the ray charles recording of this tune came out before this was recorded and i feel like there's definitely we talked about ray charles and kind of the stylistic things with the blues. I think there's some influence from that recording on the way that the trio plays this, this track. And I think it's kind of evident from the beginning in the Ray Charles recording, there's the string ensemble, the orchestra that's behind them. But I think you can kind of hear some odes to that in the way that, um, OP approaches the song, the melody, and the intro into the song. Um, you get the string intro in the Ray Charles recording, but you can kind of hear some influence in the in Oscar's playing on that in the intro as well. I think you're right. And in general, I think the tempo that they're taking on this Georgia On My Mind version is really the tempo that fits the song the best. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I hear cats play it too fast or just a little too, too slow if there is such a thing. Um, I don't know. You can make an argument that there's no such thing as too slow. I mean, if you listen to Gene Ammons play Angel Eyes, they're at like 42, 45 beats per minute. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's the most amazing, amazing thing ever. Um, so soulful and, and still energetic at that tempo. Um, so, you know, I don't know if there's a such thing as too slow, but I just really dig the tempo that they're taking on this George on my mind version. Um, there is such thing as too fast on ballads, but I'd agree yeah. that sometimes you can't like if it's soulful and it's still moving, like it's hard to play it too too slow. And I I I agree. I love the kind of 
like more relaxed tempo on this. Not relaxed in a way that they're playing, but relaxed in the like kind of the the soulful feel of it. Absolutely. Um, and you alluded to that nice rubato open piano solo to start. Very cool. The rhythm section's in at 18 seconds. And I hear a lot of nice left hand usage from mm -hmm. OP during the melody. Um, and then Ray Brown comes in with moving lines or ideas that are just placed well all throughout. He's not just doing quarter notes or half notes, at least during those A sections. The bridge is kind of more half note playing from Ray Brown, but listen for how Ray on the bass is, is accompanying OP mm -hmm. and and just the way they interact with each other musically is so effective. It's it's so it's so moving and driving, but it's not forced. It's natural and it's effortless. That is a spot on way to describe this. I don't have much as far as like the technical aspects of this song. I think my what I want to harp on most with this song is first of all, I do love OP's interpretation of the melody. It feels like the perfect mix of blues, soulfulness, and swing. And but to me, it's their feel as a trio. It's ridiculous. It's it's insane. And it's so evident. The pocket, the dynamics, the listening, it's so it's so ridiculously tight. It's so together. It's swung so well. It's just it almost this song almost gives me chills in the way. They played this song so, so ridiculously well. And Ray Brown, the thing that I have on him is, like you said, it's kind of, it's simple. His playing is simple on this track, but it's not about how many notes you play. It doesn't matter. It's about how it feels. So it's so simple, yet it's so tasteful. It's so swinging. It's so in the pocket. And like I said, I don't care how many notes you play. Just make me feel something like Ray Brown makes me feel something on this track. I don't, you could play half notes the entire time and if it's if it feels right that's what matters so listen to ray brown and listen to how he plays the song and take something from it you you will be better because of it well said Dwayne. i <laughs> concur a hundred percent um and i do want to say during the some of the piano solo that goes on later in the track i hear more uses of higher notes he, if i feel like op is kind of opening up his range on this a little bit and again, there's great chordal left hand movement, and it's it's just it just seems like we're in a, a slightly different space here in mm. terms of the way OP is using the piano. Yeah, for sure. And I think OP's left hand is it's it's so good, and it's so it almost you don't even recognize that it's going on because it's just so on point. He's got such a good left hand. His left hand is honestly as good as most people's right hands. So, yeah, I, I appreciate you pointing his left hand out. And he definitely does a really good job of especially like highlighting like the movement in the song with his left hand. And then his right hand obviously is ridiculous with, uh, you know, the way he's soloing. Yeah. And the last thing I would say about George on my mind is there's no verbatim repeat of the melody at the end. So there's no head out. But I'm also not missing the head out. I, I get everything I've ever wanted <laughs> from what they did. And I think they made the right call not repeating the melody, which is strange because I've always thought you need to repeat the melody at the end. Um, but apparently I, I, I'm mistaken. You don't. You don't uh, even know it's notice it's not. That, I mean, it's just so well played that they could have done whatever they wanted. Yeah, like they didn't have to repeat the melody. The melody is so well like played and so stylistically well done by OP in the beginning that it's like, it doesn't feel like it needs to be done again. So I, I see what you're saying there, Max. 
All right, want to move on to Bags Groove? Yeah, let's definitely get into Bags Groove. Let's just, yeah, that's this version of Georgia on my mind before we move on just really stands out to me it's maybe it's so good this and the ray charles version they're just they're both incredible so yeah let's get into to bags groove max why don't you tell us a little bit about um we're getting back into the the blues a little bit tell us a little bit about uh bags groove yes we have the 12 bar blues composition from vibraphonist melt jackson his tune bags groove recorded first in the year 1952 if you don't know melt jackson was a very very uh just exquisite vibes player really well known his nickname was bags because of the bags that he would get under his eyes from drinking late night after gigs or sometimes partying or you know working a lot he would get bags under his eyes so that's how he got that nickname bags and so that's where bags groove comes from is that it's milt jackson's groove you know it's his tune and it's it's kind of named after him and if you don't know, Mel Jackson is known for his kind of blues-drenched, cool, swinging improvisations. And he used kind of a lower tremolo on the vibraphone than, say, in uh, a Lionel Hampton. So it was just kind of really, just really a unique and cool sound that Mel Jackson was known for in his approach to the vibraphone. Yeah, and there's actually a, um, a really good Milt Jackson and Oscar Peterson recording Um it's called it's just called Oscar Peterson Trio with Milt Jackson. Uh it's really good. Oh, Very Tall is the name of the album. I have that one on on uh vinyl as well. So if you want a mix of both worlds, definitely check that out. It's it's really, really good. And it's got this trio with uh with Milt. So definitely worth checking out. Absolutely. One of the vibes players. Another great album with him is Bags and Train with mm. John Coltrane and Milt Jackson. Yep. And there's just some really cool straight ahead playing and, and some different stuff on that record, too. So Milt Jackson, a key player to check out. And this melody, Bags Groove, comes from him. Um, and here, Oscar Peterson, again, they're playing this 12-bar blues in the key of G. So just like with Night Train, they're doing that in G. They're also doing this one in G. And so the key of G comes out once again. And because Opie is doing it in G here... I often call Bags Groove in G because of this recording. I think I've recording. only ever played it in G, honestly. Yeah, it's usually played in F. Most players will call it an F. But um, I like to do it in G because OP did it. And it's it just, I don't know, it just seems more bluesier. Or I, I, that's not the right way to put it, but it, it just feels really nice in that key. Yeah, and we, yeah, G is like, we play in F a lot. Like, it's fun to play in G sometimes, too. You know, like... Yeah, yeah, so I definitely I get I get that. But yeah, I, I really like this melody feels like there's kind of a a light and simple blues shuffle kind of approach to the melody. And what this makes me think right off the bat is that at some point this light, easygoing shuffle, blues shuffle is gonna get into like some hard hitting swing. So I'm just I I know that that's coming. So I'm just ready, you know, already from the get go, I'm like, all right. There's this is nice. This is like this is cool. But I know that at some point this is really going to get swinging. So that's that's what I thought of as soon as I started listening to the melody. Yeah, the anticipation is building. Um, and you're right. They kind of start right on the melody. There's no real intro. So it, it's it's just a great effect from the beginning. And the way the melody um, is kind of written or usually played, there's a bar and a half of of space after you know the riff idea is played and so it's, it's just one riff idea that's repeated 
in the form three times and you you play that two times through so each of those times there's a listen for how the keys and the piano are going back and forth or sorry not the keys and piano the the keys and the bass are going back and forth between op and ray brown because ray brown fills in that bar and a half of space from the melody that op leaves open and that reminds me of an Ahmad Jamal recording of But Not For Me mm -hmm. from his great uh, Live at the Pershing album. Uh, I think that's what it's called. Yep. Anyway, that's also a key moment of uh, this just kind of a piano trio thing to do is where you get bass doing more than just simply walking a bass line. They actually interact musically and melodically with the piano player. Yeah, and I think there's definitely some influence from the Oscar Pe Oscar Peterson trio on the Ahmad Jamal trio. You know, I know they were they were contemporaries, but there's definitely you know like so you you said you heard that. I think there's definitely some influence there. You know, listening to Oscar Peterson's trio that you know happens in J Ahmad Jamal's playing as well, and that similar kind of piano trio um, ensemble. Probably. Yeah, I think you're right. I do think the Ahmad Jamal recording was came out first before yeah. this. Um, I think it was late 50s. But either way, you know, they both were playing at the same time. So I think there is some... Some similarities um, in style. Absolutely. And then the bass has the first solo on this track. So that's a little different. Usually you'd get the piano first, but here we get bass. And there's no sizzle from the cymbal yet from Ed Thigpen. He's still just doing brushes and hi-hat behind the bass solo. And I think this is a really cool like um, arrangement technique because like I said, I was like, okay, like this is kind of like a nice, easygoing blues feel. And I think you might expect to hear the piano and then really start to swing, dig into that swing. But instead, they give you the bass solo first. And so it kind of makes you... You're kind of like waiting, you know, on the edge of your seat. And so I, I think that's cool that they did that there. Um, I love Ray Brown's solo. It's really good use of space, like we said. Um, and you hear a lot of like kind of plucking and muting going on from Ray, which is kind of uh, it's definitely characteristic of his style at points with his soloing. So you can listen for that. He's not letting the notes really ring out. He's um, kind of plucking at the bass and then muting with his with his hand. So. Um, yeah, definitely some some characteristic things there from Ray on a solo. Yeah, and he also has some very nice double time lines at 224 you can hear. Um, and it's just a very dynamic solo from Ray Brown. And then we get an OP solo and it's kind of easygoing. Um, and he gets into some more chordal improvisations at 340 again with some riff ideas at 355. And it kind of reminded me of Cal Basie right there. Um, mm -hmm. and in general, there's just some really nice phrasing, some really great pull, push and pull of the swing feel, especially at four, 432. Um, and at 440, his playing is almost a shout chorus. So a lot of things to listen for from OP. Did you have anything on his solo? Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I want to say is I've actually, um, learned the beginning of this OP solo. I think it's a really good place to start with OP if you're looking to get into learning some of his stuff. It's not super difficult. It's not super um like it's it's not one of the more like 
involved OP solo. So if you're looking to get into it, definitely learn the, the beginning of this solo. There's some really cool blues stuff going on and some cool stuff. And you can kind of start to get a feel for his feel and his swing, which is really important. So when you're listening to it, when you're transcribing it, when you're playing it, kind of try to really get into that feel and that swing that OP's got going. Um, one thing that I really like is the way he lays back on the triplets at 307. So if you're transcribing it, try to really lay back like he does and play it along with him and you know get used to being able to push and pull the beat like that and lay back on the beat and then you know be swinging again so yeah um yeah like i've wrote a note that says listen to this and practice this until it's burned into your brain as far as that swing feel um so this is how you swing this this is how you do it it's definitely not bad advice um <laughs> Yeah, this, you know, it's a lesson and it's great to listen to. And it's it's also there's a sense of, I don't know, enjoyment and fun. And um, but again, everything they're doing is also really musical and very technical as well. And it's cool to listen for that. Yeah. And I, I want to get into. Yeah. You said that chordal movement. It's kind of like block chord movement, which is very characteristic of some swing players. Um, you said Count Basie. It also reminds me of Milt Buckner as well, who's big into the block chord kind of you take a melody instead of playing a one note. You kind of play block chords with two hands and you move the melody around in kind of these chords, which is it's really cool. And it's like kind of a gospel or a swing kind of uh, thing. It's kind of used in both genres. So um, definitely enjoy what's going on there. And like Max said, another like quote unquote shout chorus. And it feels like another kind of improvised um, rhythmic chorus at 440. And within a measure or two of it starting the whole trio is in and it sounds like it's something that was meant to be the entire time. So yeah, definitely um, cool there. The use of the, they're kind of bringing in a lot of elements of swing, you know, into blues compositions, which I really appreciate with the use of shout choruses and the block chords and the feel. So it's really cool how they kind of merge those together. And it's kind of what gives this album its sound and it's um, why it's so iconic. Spot on, very spot on. Um, and then, you know, dynamics come back, excuse me, dynamics come back into play again when the head is back in and it just kind of moves down almost immediately dynamically downward. And there's also some really nice hi-hat playing by Ed Thigpen. And then we end it with a final chord. Yep. Yeah. So kind of the, the typical thing that they do there, bring the dynamics out on the way out. Cool. Well, let's get into, um, the fifth track on the album entitled Moten Swing. Why don't you tell us about this uh, This standard, Max? Yeah, if you don't know, it's a 1932 standard from Benny Moten and his Kansas City Orchestra. It's a very important composition in the development of the swing era. So it's, it's just one of those tunes that really kind of exemplifies everything that occurred and solidified with the swing feel in Kansas City at that time and you know throughout the development of jazz and if you don't know Benny Moten and his Casey Orchestra is a precursor to the Count Basie Orchestra and so there's a lot of history there we'll probably go into it more on a different episode but it's just really neat hearing different aspects of classic swing during this album and in in here it's just so great that op has a version of moton swing on the album it just screams swing it screams just classic jazz and everything he's pulling from is is what you want to i don't know build upon 
when you're learning this music. And if you don't know Moton Swing, it, it's just one of those compositions that everybody should know. It's a 32-bar AABA form, and the bridge is in a different key. And mostly, most cats will play it in A-flat. Um, so it's great that they're doing it here. The rhythm of the A sections is kind of different the way Oscar is playing on the very beginning of the A sections. It's just slightly different. And as the tune developed, different players recorded it different ways with the, the way the rhythm is played during that A section. Um, and so you're, you're, it's kind of a, you know, untold rule that you can mess around with the rhythm of that opening A section, however you want to. And so Oscar definitely does that here. Yeah, and I think that's actually something that we see fairly often, especially with standards that have been around for a long time, is there's kind of a transformation in a lot of standards in the way they that they get played. A lot of times you'll get standards that have been around for a long time, and at some point in the history, maybe someone will change actually an entire chord, you know, so some standards there's some discrepancies in what chords, you know, there are certain chords that might be different in certain parts because someone played it differently and then it got played differently or even the melody, you know, the melodies kind of transformed from the original song in the great American songbook to where it's played differently as a jazz standard. And so I think that's interesting to see that happen over time. And it definitely happens with especially standards that have been around for a long time. So like Max is saying, there's kind of some liberty on the the um the melody over the A section here on this one, and guys will will play it differently. So I think it's cool to kind of see how that happens with different standards um in the language. Yeah, all that to say is you know Oscar is kind of playing that A section melody in a specific arranged way that he wants to do it. Yeah. Um, especially during the first part of the A section that's repeated. So just cool to listen for how he himself is interpreting and playing the melody. And it's just a, a, a different approach to the overall effect of the song. And then we get a classic two-bar break into the piano solo. I don't know if we've had one before this track. This may be the first actual two-bar break into a solo that we've gotten. Do you know? Is that true? I think it is the first two-bar break that we've, like your typical two, because we've had other breaks. But right. I, I'm pretty yeah. sure this is the first. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. This is the first two bar break, which is uh, kind of surprising, but it, I'm glad it's here. And it, it's kind of one of those go to arrangements that you would do when the, you know, solo section starts. And after that two bar break, we get the sizzle symbol, the effortless <laughs> swing, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the overall Oscar Peterson trio sound is coming right away at the start of the solo section. And I think there's some really nice triplet rhythms that OP plays at 117, some terrific blues-based ideas. The bridge is kind of more linear-based. And overall, he just only takes a one-chorus solo. Did you? What did you think of his solo? Did you hear some of that? Yeah, I definitely um, I like that two-bar break. And it's played really well. Um, the line is placed really well by Oscar there. And this, when the rhythm section comes in, this is kind of what I was expecting from the last song. But instead of a two-bar break and then a heavy-hitting swing, we got the the um, bass solo. So it is interesting that it took us till song number five to get kind of the classic swing two-bar break into the like the solo. So they give it to us here. It's what we've been wanting. Um, I agree with Max. The triplet rhythms at 117 are killer. 
Um, he builds an idea around like this two note movement at 138 to 146. And I think that's super brilliant um, to kind of use themes when you're playing. Take take a like a, a interval and kind of build something around that interval around that movement. So that's really cool there. And um, yeah, they come back into the melody kind of hot and heavy, but it's a mixture between melody and solo over the first a section and then they kind of bring the dynamics back down um for the second a section and throughout the bridge so i think that's kind of cool is when they come back in um with the melody it's not strictly just melody it's kind of a mix of melody slash solo on the first day yeah the treatment of those first two a sections on the head out reminded me of uh the album we went over satchmo of pasadena sort of the classic trad jazz style of of playing melodies where you know you're, you're referencing the melody but a lot of what you're playing are ideas or notes that surround the melodic notes or riffs that come after the melody notes or before and you're kind of playing around with the melody and not verbatim playing the head and so to me that's what op is doing and we're just getting more jazz history um from his treatment of the melody there and then you're right they move dynamically downward and then he verbatim plays the bridge melody and the final a section of the form and they they do almost kind of a classic ending lick to end moton swing yeah and i think that it's just this album might appear to be just a like a really well done jazz trio piano album but there's so many layers to that and i think that's something that i'm glad that we're listening to it like this because you can kind of start to dig into those layers and kind of get into some of the arranging and kind of what makes this album actually so prolific. It's not just a really well-played piano trio album. Like, it has a lot of layers, and it's really well done. So, yeah, it's cool to get into those things. Cool. Well, let's get into the sixth track on the album um, entitled Easy Does It. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the history on this one before we get into it, Max? This was a song written by Cy Oliver. If you don't know, Cy Oliver was a trumpet player, a band leader, composer, arranger, and a singer who was born to a musical family. His dad was an early player of the saxophone outside of the marching band um, format. And so he just had kind of an influential father that was a saxophone player. And as Cy Oliver developed, he was employed by Tommy Dorsey as an official arranger of the Tommy Dorsey band, and he was one of the first black Americans with such a big role in a white band setting. And the story goes that uh, Tommy Dorsey basically stole Cy Oliver from Jimmy Lunsford in Jimmy Lunsford's band because Tommy Dorsey was paying him quite a bit more money. And so Cy Oliver said, I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he arranged for uh, Tommy Dorsey's big band. And so he later also worked with the great Louis Armstrong and Frank Sinatra. And if you don't know, Cy Oliver is known for writing the tune, Ain't What You Do, It's The Way That You Do It, which is also a popular standard at the time. So you'll see Cy Oliver's name all over this music. And he's an influential um, player in terms of arranging for big bands. And, and he's the composer of some very key um, songs that were performed by such jazz legends. So um, if you don't know Cy Oliver, look him up. A lot of history there. And this is also kind of a nice riff-based melody. Um, this tune, Easy Does It. It's kind of an ABA 24 bar form is basically what I was getting, but it's also more or less just an eight bar blues. 
And Opie takes his time with his ideas. I think he's very blues-oriented during his solo. There's some busier sweeps at 151, some nice double-time lines thrown in all throughout, and there's really great use of repetition and references to the melody, especially right at 203 to 213. Dwayne, what do you think of his solo or anything to say on that? Yeah, one thing I want to know, it's a fairly short tune. It's only two minutes and 43 seconds, so for a jazz tune, that's it's extremely short, but it's, it's short and to the point. The melody is played in kind of a a light similar swing fashion to some of the other tunes on this album. Um, and yeah, I love the lick at 108 to 111. There are some really great blues ideas, like you said. Um, and one thing I want to point out that really stood out to me is just listen to Oscar's feel and his sense of swing from 145 to like the minute and 45 seconds to two minute mark. Um, the way he really swings notes and swings phrases, it's, like of different lengths. It doesn't matter if it's an eighth note, a triplet, a 16th note. It doesn't matter what it is. It's going to get swung and it's going to get swung hard. So that's one thing to listen for Oscar is like, he doesn't just swing the triplets. He doesn't just swing whatever, you know, dotted quarter. It's everything's getting swung and it's going to get swung hard. So listen to Oscar, the way he plays things, the way he swings his phrases. It's, it's really good. And yeah, then they bring the dynamics back down on the, the head out. Um, similarly to some other songs so yeah that's that was my main thought it's just the oscars feel yeah it's a great thing to listen for and just the influence of the blues even though they've played you know two or three or four <laughs> blues songs already on the album here uh it's not necessarily a 12 bar blues form but it's a it's kind of an a bar blues form and everything oscar is doing almost everything is really just blues oriented or blues drenched in the listen for all the different ways you can play the blues um during oscar solo i think that's the key here and you're right they move it dynamically downward and they just end it with one eight bar section to end it so all in all you're right it's a short track but there's a lot in it to listen for and it's just it just screams blues to me yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, the blues and the the swing. It's just the merger of the two. So let's get into the seventh track on the album entitled Honey Dripper. Yeah, if you don't know, Honey Dripper is an early R&B blues-based song from Joe Liggins and his Honey Drippers um, from the year 1945. The term Honey Dripper apparently was used as a slang term for a very sweet guy. Um, and this, you know, Joe Liggins track Honey Dripper was an early runaway hit and it's kind of a precursor to rock and roll. And if you listen for that original recording, the sax solo on that sounds exactly like the type of saxophone solos you would hear from rock and roll records of the mid to late fifties and early sixties. So it, I don't know if you check out Joe Liggins and his Honey Drippers and their, you know, their record of Honey Dripper, it just seems like they're playing rock and roll 10 years before rock and roll hit the scene. And part of that has to do with the racial dynamics at the time. And, you know, Joe Liggins, um, pretty sure was, was a, a, a black American player. And, you know, they say kind of a lot of rock and roll started in the mid 1950s with groups like Bill Haley and the Comets. But those were some white guys that were doing what a lot of black players had already done five to ten years previously and so if you listen for that joe liggins and his honey drippers recording there's just a lot of precursors to rock and roll that 
you know, later performers pulled from in their shows and in their music. So it's, it's a great track to check out. Um, and uh, it reminded me looking up the history of it, that a lot of times when Joe Liggins would play the honey dripper live, they would do a 15 minute version of the song. Now that's, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. I know that reminded me of you and me. Um, but of course on the record, they could only do it for three minutes, three and a half minutes. So it's a sort of a condensed, condensed version of, of how they would perform it. But there's a lot of history with this song. So, you know, it's just something to, to really check out. And this version of Honey Dripper, it's a faster tempo by Oscar Peterson than it was originally performed in the 40s. And so they're just doing kind of a faster 12-bar blues song version of that song. And there's some really nice fills from Ray Brown during the second chorus of the of the head. And Opie's iconic left hand to me is on display during the melody and during his solo. Did you hear that? Yeah, I definitely noticed that. That's what I put. There are just lots of different cool elements um, from Opie's left hand here. And his left hand is just so versatile. He can he can do he can comp with his left hand while he's soloing. He can stride with his left hand he can mirror with his left hand and i think yeah i just i wrote here that his left hand could outplay many of our right hands so yeah i definitely noticed um his left hand standing out to me during that part and then there's some key uses of repetition that are really super hip um that op is using i love the lick idea at 130 he pulls from and he continues to develop changing certain notes but keeping the same rhythm and so he's he's continually developing the rhythm um, by changing the notes, but but keeping that feel all throughout his improvisations. And he does that again later on in the next chorus as well. And I think Oscar's rhythm here during his solo is absolutely killer. And that's what shines to me on this track is OP's rhythm and and the way he can feel in and out of different rhythms. Yeah, I definitely that um the idea at 130 stood out to me as well. He's just so good at taking an idea and kind of using it in different ways, whether it's repeating it or with this one, he takes the idea rhythmically and he changes the color of it, changes the notes, you know, that he's playing. So I think that, yeah, that definitely, it stood out to me. I'm glad you mentioned that because Oscar's just, he's such a master of doing that, of like presenting an idea and then manipulating that idea in a swinging way. So that was, that was really cool there. Yeah, and then the head out is very clean to me, and it's always swinging. Um, you know, there's they're they're not doing too much here with the honey dripper, but they're doing just enough, I think. Yeah, for sure, I definitely I I agree with that. Um, kind of similar in the way that they approach you know head outs. It's kind of their their kind of trademark as the the Oscar Peterson trio is to kind of dial it back and bring it kind of smooth and clean on the way out. Yep. And then the next track on the album, we got Things Ain't What They Used To Be. This is another 12-bar blues. This one written by Mercer Ellington, who was Duke Ellington's son. And this one was used by Duke and his orchestra during the strike in the early 1940s that occurred against the American Society of Composers, which Duke Ellington was a member of. So he didn't really want to I guess I, I don't know the whole story, but either way, he wasn't playing a lot of his own music during that strike. I think it lasted a year or two. And so he used Mercer Ellington's song um, a lot of the time during performances on that one. And that was 
you know, the tune Things Ain't What They Used To Be, which has become an iconic blues tune to call on on gigs and on the bandstand. And um, Duke had arranged it for the band, but he did not originally write it. And so the song is often played by both the Count Basie Orchestra and the Duke Ellington Orchestra. And so it's it's just a cool crossover tune that is among many places and many different bands and used in a lot of different ways. And so I'm glad to see it on this this album from OP. It's overall a nice, relaxed tempo, and they're doing it in the key of D flat, which is pretty common to play it in. I, I also have played it in B flat or E flat is another one to do. Things ain't what they used to be in. And again, I think you should listen for Ray Brown. He has some really nice fills during, you know, things ain't what they used to be. And there's a nice build into the piano solo transitioning from the head. Good use of space and development. And just the phrasing is on point. There's a lot of style. There's some nice trills at 148. Easygoing movement at 227. Very chordal, very, um, just very nice treatment of everything that OP is doing. It's very dynamic and it's always moving. Yeah, I definitely agree. I One thing I want to point out is, you know, you said, you mentioned Ray Brown. And I think one thing he does so well is he, he adds so well to the melody without overshadowing the melody itself. Um, so he's just, he's so good at, you know, the communication so good. They're so tight as a group. So Ray Brown definitely stands out to me in that way. The way he's able to add to the melody without distracting from it is nice. Um, and I think there's a, the cool eighth note um, rhythmic transition into the solo, which is cool. And then what OP does to start the solo is he starts it with an idea and then he takes that same idea and kind of transposes it up and repeats it. So we're talking about, you know, OP's style and how he can kind of give you ideas and use them in different ways. That's another way to do it. And that's a really common, you know, technique. But it just goes to show that he does he doesn't just play through lines, you know, it's not just bebop lines, moving lines the whole time. Like he's really good at like you know, giving you an idea and then kind of playing with that idea. So that's definitely something he does there. Um, yeah. And then there's also one thing that he does uh, at 122. He plays an idea at 122 and it almost feels like he doesn't. He cuts it short. He doesn't play the end of it. And then he repeats the idea again. But it's, it seems like he finishes the thought the second time that he plays it. So I think that's also a really cool technique is he kind of gives you an idea doesn't finish it and then repeats it and then finishes it. So just the techniques, the different ways to kind of use ideas and just listen to that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that's super interesting and you're playing. So kind of take note of what Oscar's doing there. Yeah. It kind of leaves you wanting more in those moments. And then, you know, it's, it's just kind of delaying the, um, the phrasing in a way that's musically interesting to listen to. Yeah. I think it's the best way to put it. And as it goes on, he does another kind of shout section at 302. And you can hear uh, some nice fills from Ed Thickpin on the drums at the end of Oscar Peterson's phrases. And so there it's another moment where we can hear how well we're listening to an ensemble and the interaction between the different instruments and the different players. And, you know, they're, they're really playing together, even though, you know, it's kind of OP feature in one moment and Ed Thigpen feature in another moment, the way they go in and out of each other and complement one another is just super fantastic. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that OP does is he kind of uses some more 
traditional blues kinds of trills um, in his playing. And some jazz pianists would tell you not to do that. Some people would say that that's not really jazzy. That's not, or jazzy, quote unquote. That's not like fundamentally jazz, but it's jazz and blues. Like there's, you know, they're so intertwined that if Oscar can do this and do it well, it's okay to do it. You don't have to stay away from playing like a more traditional blues trill or idea um, just because it's jazz music. That's kind of kind of snobby, in my opinion, kind of. Yeah, it's highfalutin. It's pretentious. It's pretentious. Uh, yeah, that's the, a good word for it. I would go as far as inhumane. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm reaching, but it's you're right. You know, if you're playing a blues, play play some blues. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me if it's more in the style of John Lee Hooker or something. Um, it's all music, or, and it's all you know, like we're the music's so closely related, you know, so. And we talked about this on Sunny Side Up with Ray Bryant's playing on um, they they did a blues tune where the first three minutes was basically Ray Bryant just showcasing his traditional blues elements that he has in his playing. And I think that's a just just a just a fantastic feature to that album. And here we get a little of that from OP2. And I not only do I think it's okay, I think it's I'm ex it makes me ecstatic. I'm in <laughs> I'm so relieved i guess is the right word because i, I i'm tired of the fuddy-duddy um sort of highfalutin attitude where we, we think jazz has to fit into this box and has to be a certain way I mean, really if you listen to the history of this music the traditional blues playing is a is an essential part of it yeah and i think it would it's just pretentious to think we can take the the form of your music so we like the form of blues music but we're going to take it and we're going to do it in our own way and you can't we can't play it like you play it we're better than that that's like that seems pretentious to me to say we like the form of the music we're going to steal that from traditional blues music but we're going to play it in our own way that's quote unquote better and you can't do those things that they did because that's not jazz that's bullshit to me that doesn't make any sense so i definitely appreciate when you hear oscar really dig into the blues and that's fine. It is. It's blues. It's music. It's. It feels good. So yeah. Yeah. It's to me. It it makes. You know. It it adds so much to Opie's style. I don't understand how you can deny its reality, in its attachment to jazz music. So, it's you're right. There is that attitude out there, but I think it's safe to say you and I don't share that attitude or opinion. So it's great to hear that from Op. And there's just a lot of things we're getting from from this track. There's great falling eighth note ideas from Ray Brown also at 337 tra to transition back to the melody. Um, so just hearing those moments from the transition from melody to solo and back to melody, it's really cool to listen for how they're they're treating that and what they're adding to it. And it's another part of their arranging that makes their ensemble so great. Yeah, for sure. I definitely I think Ray Brown kind of sticks out to me on this song, especially um, they definitely they bring the dynamics back down into the head out as they've done. And it kind of features Ray Brown on the way out. There's some like bass insertions in the melody. And then he closes it closes it out with like some kind of bass kind of uh, bass like ideas or riffs as you would say like a kansas city style like riff you know and so that's cool to get that from ray on the the way out on the tune and he's also pulling 
you know, not just from the blues, but a lot of jazz, you know, techniques, including I think he uses some tritone substitution. He's mm. kind of going almost out of the key at certain moments during those fills. So it's great to hear all the things Ray Brown is doing at that ending. Yeah, for sure. It's a really cool, different way to end the tune, but it's definitely unique and I, I like it. All right. Next, we get another Duke Ellington tune um, on the album called I Got It Bad and That Ain't Good. So kind of two Duke tunes or two tunes associated with Duke Ellington back to back here. Um, if you don't know, it is kind of a, a pop or jazz standard. And the lyrics um, were written by Paul Francis Webster, who's just a, a well-known lyricist of um, Jewish heritage. He wrote the lyrics for Masquerade, Secret Love, and The Shadow of Your Smile. And Paul Webster also worked for Duke Ellington for a period of time. Also, Shirley Temple, he wrote a lot of songs for. And he was kind of an in-house lyricist for MGM. And he wrote the lyrics to the original Spider-Man theme song. So (laughs) you'll see. history. Yeah, you'll see Paul Francis Webster all over. Um, And it's really kind of a ballad in AABA form, 32-bar form. This tune, I Got a Bad and That Ain't Good. And I I just really like what Oscar is doing with it. He's kind of a little free with the melody, um, adding licks and trills and a lot of stylistic techniques that we often hear from Oscar. But he's doing it to the melody here, which kind of makes it a little more unique. You can definitely hear that in his improvisations and not always with the melody. And here he's adding quite a bit to the head. And so it's interesting to listen for those moments. And again, it's another moment where I think Ray Brown's playing is very interesting to listen to. Sometimes he fills in the space. Sometimes he doesn't. Or he just plays half notes or whole notes. And once in a while, sometimes he's just mimicking Oscar Peterson's Peterson's ideas with him, moving with his lines or quarter notes. And whatever Ray does, it's always swinging and it's helpful in the movement of the song and just driving the song along. Yeah, for sure. I think Ray's just, everything he does is just, it feels so good, and his feel is so good, and yeah, his sense of, of musicality is is incredible. Um, I love Oscar's treatment of the melody. Like you said, he kind of um, is a little free in the way he plays it, but you can tell it's, it's so stylistic. You can tell it's OP playing. His style is so unique, and I just really enjoy that he puts his style into you know the melodies when he's you know playing melodies and it's it's super soulful and kind of blues infused and um it's just the way he approaches a ballad is interesting he just puts so much soul and blues into playing a ballad which is cool and it's kind of oscar's mo especially on this album night train um is to kind of infuse the blues and the soulfulness into the tracks even on a ballad like this and it kind of reminds me uh of his approach to Georgia on my mind kind of takes that super blues approach to a ballad, um, which is cool. And so, yeah, you get some of the classic OP blues double stops from one Oh five to one ten. If you want to learn how to play blues, double stops or blues lines in jazz music, just listen to OP, just transcribe the stuff he's doing. I mean, it's all so good. His feel is so good and it's so well placed. So that's another example of it there. And it's just, it's, this song feels so easygoing, yet it's so swinging and so soulful. So it's, it's awesome how they're able to kind of 
make it feel so easygoing yet still so swinging at the same time. So, yeah, I love that. Absolutely. And another connection I hear to George on my mind is the way OP is using some higher notes in the piano register. So again, that ballad seems to just signal to OP that he, I don't know, opens up a little bit on his range and his use of the piano, the full piano. And I don't know if he's, he feels like he has the space to do so or, you know, he has time to, to reference different ideas that he's always going through in his mind or his, his ear. Um, I don't know. It's just, to me, those higher notes come out to me on I Got a Bad and That Ain't Good, as well as Georgia on my mind. Um, and it's just really cool. He also references the melody, the second A section, so you can hear how, you know, a lot of times in jazz improvisation, we don't want to forget about the melody. We want to be able to reference the melody at the drop of a hat, no matter where in the form we are. Not ne not necessarily saying we have to, but it's a you know it's not a bad idea to keep in mind the melody even when you're improvising. Um, and I think he has some great playing during the bridge. You can hear kind of his full voicings that he uses. And then the last A section is Oscar just riffing off of the main melody, and then they kind of slow down to an open rubato cadenza section. Yeah, I definitely, I really love the the ending. One thing that um, stood out to me is the beginning of Oscar solo um, at 233. I love how he plays kind of like a moving, like kind of bop line, and but then it melds into like a blues line by the end of the phrase. And I think that's just super cool because he's showing, he's giving you kind of that bop thing, but then it just goes back into the blues, which has kind of been the, the entire album has been focused around the blues so it's cool how he does that and yeah i definitely i love the final the approach on the final a section um the way they kind of riff off the melody and then they slow down into the the all the open kind of cadenza so yeah it's a really cool cool ending there yeah and it seems like they're using longer notes here and um i don't know just kind of using um sustained longer notes which is a little different than we've heard earlier in the album and we reach a final chord with both Ray Brown and, and Ed Thigpen back in to end it. So really neat ending and a lot of things to listen for from OP on that one. Um, and then the next track is called band call, which is yet another tune associated <laughs> with Duke Ellington and his orchestra. So we have what three in a row. We're is getting right? them all, all right back to back. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I, I dig it. it it's cool. Um, and this one is not really necessarily covered very often. So it's kind of neat that OP chose this track um, to play on the album. It's a 12-bar blues that they're playing two times through. The first eight bars sounds like Oscar is playing almost a big band riff idea using chords, and there's kind of a call and response between him and Ray Brown. So it's very, I don't know, big band oriented and it's it's almost as if he's doing a piano trio version of a duke ellington orchestra arrangement yeah i definitely agree i think i wrote this is a cool arrangement of the tune with it just being a trio um that the arranging is just so well done here and they're kind of owed to duke ellington there and the big band era is awesome yeah and i think if you listen for both Oscar and Ray Brown, they're playing almost all the different parts you would hear from the different parts in a in an orchestra setting, a big band setting from Duke Ellington. So it's just 
a really neat arranging technique that they're doing. Um, and then they finish the arrangement of the tune. It's starting in the fifth bar of the blues form, and they're doing the head uh, two times through. And I I want to also point out there's a really nice sweeping motion at the 36 second mark during the head. That is just so cool and such a stylistic aspect to this version. Did you hear that? Yeah, I definitely, um, I did hear that. And I think, yeah, that's, it's just Oscar's got so many different tricks up his sleeve. Like he can do so many things so well. So I definitely, I heard that and I thought that was pretty cool as well. And then at the 52nd mark, we get the piano solo and we get some really iconic lines from OP. There's some fast triplet rhythms at 126. And overall, his feel is super swinging. At 148, he plays similar grace notes you can hear from the first track, Night Train. And at 205, excuse me, it's a great tripletized blues repeated idea. We all kind of do, but we don't do it as well as Oscar Peterson does it. Yeah, I think um, you point something out there, and something I noticed is all of those things that you mentioned. He plays a lick at 106. This is I. If you're listening, I want you to go and listen for this because it's super cool. It kind of mentioned like what I was talking about earlier with Oscar presenting ideas. He plays a lick at 106, and then he continues to reference that idea throughout the entire solo in many different ways. And every single thing you just pointed out was a reference of that lick. And I'm going to point out every time that I heard him reference that kind of, it's kind of like a two-note idea. You know, I don't think I caught that, um, but you're right. All those tripletized blues ideas are, he's he's developing and pulling from that one original idea. So what were all those moments where it comes up? Yeah, I'm going to point out all of them. If you're listening, definitely listen. So he first plays it at 106, and then I hear it again at 112, 126, 148, 151, 204, and 211. And so definitely listen to that, and you can hear him just go back to it over and over and just approach it from different ways. And all of those things that Max mentioned, Max mentioned – 126 148 205 so max was mentioning yep. those things but it's all in reference to that first thing and there's also another one kind of in the, like the 130s but it's not directly referencing it so i didn't put it in there but listen to that section from like 106 it's like three choruses listen to it and he's just he's taking that idea and he's just he keeps going back to it and it's just really cool because it it keeps you interested and even if you don't realize it's going on it keeps you interested in what's he's what he's playing there and that's a great thing to do when you're improvising in general is to not, uh, you know, don't always forget what you had previously started with or what you previously did. You know, if there's something you really liked or something that was really cool rhythmically or melodically or harmonically that you did in the first course, why not repeat it or do it in a different way the second course or the third course? You know, it. There should be some sort of continual development in your improvisations. One player that comes to mind is the great Sonny Rollins, Mm -hmm. who was fantastic at doing that. And here we get OP doing it in just an incredible fashion. And I'm glad you made that list. It's a great thing to listen for. Great thing to point out. Um, Great catch on that one. Yeah, I think, yeah, some people think like, oh, it's my soul. I just need to show people what I've got. And so they'll play all these lines and licks and things and try to show them a million different things. Oscar's like, no, no, no. Give them an idea and then show them what you can do with that idea. That's just such a cool thing. It's another aspect of 
the artistry of jazz improvisation that, you know, these guys did so well, you know, we can learn so much from that. Um, it's just a fantastic moment on this album. And there's just, a, you know, those ideas, the way we want to be able to develop solos, there's a lot of different thoughts and attitudes and um, theories or ideas around it. But I think if you just listen for what these cats are doing, it's a great starting place. And this is really where you should learn from. You should learn straight from the record. As one Brantford Marsalis told me in person at one time, one time I met him, he said, everything you need is on the records. And <laughs> I, think he, I think he's right. That's a good point. So, yeah. Yeah. So as the track continues, we get a bass solo at 224. And I think Ray sticks to a lot of quarter notes. And to me, that's kind of old school. That's mm -hmm. a, you know, that's a practice that occurred during swing era solos from bass players. And here Ray Brown is doing that. So you hear all the different things he can do from the first few tracks during a bass solo. And here he just keeps it nice and neat with different, you know, quarter notes that he's playing with, maintaining the tempo, maintaining the feel. And it's, it's a really sort of neat aspect to this track. And then at 303, we get a, another shout chorus with some easy fills from Ed Thigpen. And so Ed, to me, on drums shines at at that moment on this track. Yeah, for sure. I think we kind of referenced, um, you said kind of old school. Yeah, definitely kind of that. We talked about the, the role of the bass during the transition from like traditional jazz into swing. And so you can kind of hear Ray going back to kind of more of the roots of jazz and that kind of that era, you know, early swing era stuff with how he plays his solo there. And it's pretty much just, you know, a walking quarter note kind of thing going on there. So that's that's a good point there, Max, for sure. Um, but yeah, they do that kind of shout chorus, which is kind of part of the melody as well um, at 3.03. And then they kind of build the intensity and they repeat that um, one extra time and they end together on the one, which is cool, um, on beat one. So that was cool. Yes, this ending is different than the others. They just stop on a quarter note altogether, and it's it's really neat. It's done together really well, and it's not choked off like we've heard other players <laughs> do with a, with a quarter note ending. Sometimes it's just a little choky or a little too short. Here it's a full quarter note, and it's a very nice, well-played ending. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Let's get into the final track on the album, um, the original composition entitled Hymn to Freedom. So this is the only original from Oscar Peterson on the album. Um, it's very gospel influenced. In, uh, sorry. <laughs> gospel. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to say influenced and infused, and I put them there together. There you go. That's a new word. Influenced. Uh, <laughs> So very gospel infused and influenced. I think it's an AAVA form and it's one of the longer tracks on the record. Um, and it is neat to have an OP original on the, the album. He, I, I don't know of any other, there may be a few other originals, but he's, he's more known for just being fantastic, a fantastic piano player doing, you know, great jazz standards and, and bosses and different things. So it, it's a really neat aspect to this record that there's an OP original on it um and i did find a real book chart so there is a chart for him to freedom you can find and it's it's 
seems mostly accurate, uh, maybe not at all moments, but it, it lays out the form at least pretty well. Again, AABA form. Um, there's a solo piano just one time through. So he's going through the whole form one time just by himself without bass and drums. And it's very hymn-like. It reminds me of sort of a, a black church hymn or even just a classic um, Protestant hymn that he's playing. And then the rhythm section comes back in uh, at 131 after Oscar goes through it one time through um, by himself. And here when the rhythm section comes back in, Oscar kind of starts to solo a little bit, but he's sticking to ideas that are based off of the main melody. And this is another moment that reminds me a little bit of, of a trad jazz style where you, 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 you're playing a, a melody, but you're riffing off of it. And so he does that here. What do you think of that? Any thoughts on OP during this track so far? Yeah, I think it's so interesting. This track is so different from everything else on the album. And it's the last track on the album. It's the first original. It's just the style is completely different than any other track. But it's cool. It's very gospel hymn to me. Um, I love how it starts with just the solo piano intro. It's very it's very like fun to listen to and it's it's just different it's not something we don't get like kind of that gospel hymn kind of feel all the time in in jazz music so it's it's nice to to have that difference um the rhythm section is very smooth on their entrance which is nice i mean we've talked about how good these guys are and how good of a group they are it's just a very smooth entrance from the rhythm section and um op's ability to merge a gospel hymn with blues music that is spiritual. We've talked about spirituality in music on the podcast. We talked about it last week or two weeks ago on the last episode. This is spiritual to me. When you take a gospel hymn and you infuse blues and jazz into it, that is so spiritual to me. And I, I, I love that. Um, and yeah, you know, yeah, I was just going to say you read a snippet from a critic that was talking about Emmanuel Wilkins's seventh hand album that we reviewed on our last episode where the critic said his album was blues based and gospel infused and i'm sorry i think the critic was talking about this album at least this <laughs> track you know yeah, at least this track he he meant oscar peterson's hymn to freedom not emmanuel wilkins's uh seventh hand album i think I it would describe this track a lot better than i mean not to like yes. anything you know, to say anything bad about Manuel Wilkins, but I just think that that wasn't the what his was founded on. I think his album was way more centered around like kind of avant-garde or free jazz things. And so, yeah, that critic, I think he was confused. So maybe he was talking about this song. I agree with that, Max. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Oscar's left hand again. Um, it's really good job of keeping things moving. Um, his left hand on the using, you know, the chords in the left hand. It just feels like it moves super well. And then they kind of open up the swing a little bit um, at at 302, and that's when the solo really begins. Um, yeah, and there's a really cool trill section, and it goes all the way kind of through the, the form at 349. And I think it's just really cool. It's just like a different technique. Um, he kind of, yeah, uses kind of this trill with both hands, and he plays all the way through the progression on it. So what do you, what do you think about that one, Max? Yeah, we get these big full trills that he's doing with multiple notes, I think in both hands, and it grows dynamically louder and louder as he goes on. 
this is so dynamic. It's so moving. It's so emotional. Spiritual. To, to me, this is spiritual. Yeah. What? Just because they have a form and a swing feel, they're not spiritual. I beg to differ. This is a moment where it is definitely spiritual to me. It reminds me of a solo uh, or part of a solo that comes from Oscar Peterson on a tune called Blues for Big Scotia. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's a recording where I think he's with a big band. And he has this really open, you know, solo section. Um, the band is in with him, but he just does these big full trills on the on the piano and on blues for Big Scotia, it's even longer and more dramatic, I think. But you know, it's just something that OP does that is fantastic and very musical. And to me, it is spiritual. And I love that moment of this record. Everything he's doing is very stylistic. And again, you can hear the cymbal sizzle from Ed Thigpen mm-hmm. during the solo. And that's just the iconic moment. If you're confused about where the solo starts, listen for the <laughs> cymbal sizzle. <laughs> um, and Ed Thig- Thigpen, on those big full trills that OP plays, he's following it with his snare drum rolls. And it's so cool, the interaction you can hear from Ed, you know, playing musically along with OP right there. You know, again, it's another moment where they are an ensemble, even though OP is doing something that's improvisatory and um, sort of just unique to his own instrument. Ed Thigpen is copying him and, and supporting him and playing his role even more as a drummer. And he's accentuating everything that OP is doing. And that's the job of a drummer to accentuate the swing feel and what's going on around you. Yeah, it's kind of that on-the-spot arranging that we talked about, and it's just, it's coming from the soul. It's just so musical. It's so well done. I I definitely agree with that. Um, And then they kind of uh, bring it back down a little bit, and OP gets real, real bluesy before they head back into the the melody, which uh, is just, you know... He's got to bring the blues to it. That's kind of been the theme the whole time. So, yeah, and then they, uh, once again, they dial the melody back um, on the way out. And there's a super well done uh, retardando to finish. The song slows down and kind of gives you a nice culmination and a nice finish to the to the album. Absolutely. And I think this is a great tune to, to end the album on. Another aspect to this record that I find really satisfactory is the way it's curated the order of songs the way it starts the way it ends the middle section um it just makes so much musical sense to me and it's beyond well done it's another realm of perfection that i can't really describe but it's a perfect way to end the album yeah i think at face value this album doesn't isn't doesn't seem as deep as it might be like i said before like at face value it might just seem like a really good blues piano but blues piano trio album um or jazz blues piano trio album but there's so much more to it and we've i'm glad we kind of got into all these layers and what makes this album really really one of the the greatest um and one of oscar's best albums so cool well let's get into our top three and our not so hot tracks for the album max i'll let you go first on this one well, my number one is Night Train, the title track. There's just so much to listen for. I love the blues. I love the boogie woogie and all the different ways Ray Brown is featured on that track. It just screams excellence to me. 
Number two is C-Jam Blues. Those stop time four bar interludes are killer and it just swings really hard. I love everything that's going on. Number three is the last track on the album, Hymn to Freedom. It's so unique. It's great that it's an original composition and all the different ways, you know, OP is playing on that track is spiritual and emotional and elegant at times. You know, it, it really screams awesomeness. Uh, <laughs> it's the best way I could put it. Um, my not so hot is easy. Does it? I did not think there was a not so hot track on the album, but to me, that one is, is the closest I could come up with. It's the shortest track. There's not quite as much there as I get from other, um, songs on the album. So I had to go with easy. Does it as my not so hot. Yeah. I have a similar top three, although a few differences and I have a, a bone to pick with you. Um, Oh, so my number one is CJ and blues. I think it's just, it's just iconic. Um, it encompasses everything that the album's about. It, it shows off all of their playing really well and Oscar's playing super well. Um, it swings super hard. My second track and my bone to pick with Max is, uh, my second, not, or my second on the top three is Georgia on my mind. And I, I need Max's justification for leaving this off his his top three, and I need it right now. <laughs> well, if it was a top four, it would be included in my top four. Okay. The, the, the issue is I get so much from Oscar on Him to Freedom, and Him to Freedom is almost a ballad tempo. Mm. Um and you know, I love ballads. So I love George on my mind. I love, I got it bad and that ain't good. And, and, uh, you know, normally because those are ballads and the way Oscar Peterson plays and he plays them so well, that would be on my top three. I just got more from him to freedom that maybe I wasn't expecting as I would. Mm. Whereas most of everything OP was doing on George on my mind was a little more expected. I mean, it's all super fantastic. And, um, beyond great i just get a little more musicality from him to freedom okay all right i i i uh i can see what you're saying um but i think leaving georgia on my mind off of the top three it's it's a little criminal i do love him to freedom some could say that me leaving that off my top three is is somewhat criminal as well but uh yeah so that's my bone to pick with max it's been picked well, we, you know, we have to, your, this was your idea, the top three. So I just had choices to make and, um, I went with him to freedom, but Georgia on my mind is, is almost what would have made my third if him to freedom was not on the record. Okay. I can, I can get down with that. Just let the record reflect that I object with Max leaving it out. And then my <laughs> third, uh, I think night train has to be on there. I think it's just iconic. It's the title track. It got it has everything you need. Um, so I, I do agree. I think I could have put him to freedom in this spot as well. There are I probably could have put any track in my third spot. I definitely thought that CJ and Blues and Georgia on my mind stood out. Um Bag's Groove kind of gets an honorable mention and almost snuck into that third spot for me as well. Yeah. Um so yeah, and I agree with Max on the not so hot. There isn't a not so hot. It doesn't really exist on this album. But Easy Does It, it's just so short and it doesn't give you as much as the other tracks. So I think if you have to take one out, 
the album would suffer the least from taking Easy Does It Out. I don't think there's anything else you could take out. Absolutely. So cool. Let's get into our overall album thoughts and our ratings. I'll go ahead and go first on this one this week, Max, and uh, give you my thoughts and ratings. So, I'm ready. Um, Night Train emerges. It merges blues and swing in a way only the Oscar Peterson trio could do. This album is the pinnacle of what a jazz piano trio is capable of when led by one of the greatest pianists that jazz music has ever known. While Oscar clearly stands out on the album, we would be remiss not to mention how incredible the playing from Ray Brown and Ed Thigpen is on this album. They complement Oscar in a way that is so musical and so swinging. Ray's playing is ever swinging, deep pocketed, and insightful. And Ed's playing is all the same while having such a unique style and ability to keep up with what Oscar's playing. There's no doubt that this album is based in blues, as is Oscar's playing. Yet the album never feels boring and it never feels repetitive. The compositions are usually brief, but musical and exciting. The dynamics are ranging and as are the emotions elicited. Um, I think there could have been a little bit more opening up on one or two of the arrangements um, to really let the band loose, but you know that that's not Oscar's intentions on this album. And if that's what you're looking for, there are plenty of OP albums that will give you lots of that. So um, Oscar's influences are evident as well as his influences on the music and the language are ever present until this day. His feel, his technique, his dynamics, emotion, and his communication with the rhythm section are one of a kind, and this album will forever be regarded as one of the greatest jazz piano trio albums to ever be recorded. And for all of those reasons, this is going to get a really, really high mark for me. This is uh, I, I'm giving it a 9.6 out of 10. I think this is going to be about as high as, as something can go. It's just, it is the pinnacle of jazz piano trio album playing. It's one of the greatest albums of all time. And there's really nothing wrong with it. Like you, there's, it's, there's not much you're going to take off, um, for, of this album. So 9.6 out of 10, because obviously nothing's perfect and maybe, you know, they could be better, but I don't see really how much. Right. Yeah. Those are great, great points. Um, I would agree with most of that. I think the iconic album Night Train, the Oscar Peterson Trio, is an incredible representation of what you can do with the blues in a piano trio setting. Oscar's time, rhythm, swing, arranging, and overall dynamic drive is solid throughout, delivering an effortless performance from the very start to the finish. OP style is unmatched. I think the album's song selection is very blues-drenched, yet each tune brings a different aspect of this music to life with Oscar's arrangements and the trio's treatments of the tunes. The title track, along with CJ and Blues and Honey Dripper, are clear examples of what I'm talking about. The ballad, George On My Mind, is a standout recording, along with the Kansas City-style jazz standard Moten Swing. Also with Band Call and I Got It Bad and That Ain't Good, we get a clear reverence for Duke Ellington, and to me, that is much appreciated. I really dig that part of this album. Ray Brown is featured quite nicely on Upright Bass, and his accompaniment to OP's playing is unique and very on point. Ed Thigpen's cymbals are a key component to the album's overall sound, and he also has a few nice, albeit brief, uh, moments. From the original Hymn to Freedom, we get a sense of everything that makes up Oscar Peterson. Somewhere, I could have used a drum solo, and I believe one or two of the tracks 
very possibly could have been stretched out just a bit further, yet nothing is necessarily missed. You know, I agree with you. I'm not missing anything from this album. It's just if I could critique it, <laughs> those are a couple of things I would say. Um, I think this record has influenced an array of musicians and jazz listeners alike. To me, this is the pinnacle example that comes to mind when you bring together the music and the influence of piano giants like Nat King Cole, Art Tatum, James P. Johnson, and Teddy Wilson. Oscar is the epitome of all of them put together, and then some. A number of his other recordings and live concerts feature busier solos and arguably maybe just a little too much arranging, yet here we get just the right amount of everything. For that, and for all the reasons I mentioned, I gave it an overall score of 9.3 out of 10. And I, I did kind of want to give it a higher rating, but I, I, it's, it's hard to gauge sometimes where in the 9 to 10 mark I should give something because I want to leave room open for something in the future that we'll go over or discuss or, or find where, you know, it really does point out above a yeah 9.5 or higher to me um i guess just because of the amount of similarities that are in each track from one to the uh, one to the next um that's kind of my reservation for not giving it a higher score than 9.3 but i love everything that's going on and there's so much to listen for and you get a sense of the blues and op and everything he has to offer yeah, for sure. I think for me, I just kind of now that we've got a catalog going, I'm starting to like be able to look at some of the other albums that we've got and kind of compare, you know, like how do I think this album stacks up versus this album? And to me, I went and looked back at some of the things that we've reviewed. And I just think that this album is just I mean, I think there are a few that have been up in the nine point, you know, five ish range. But this one is just like it's got that slight edge, but without, you know, there's room for, for maybe something a little better if we can find it, but it's, it would take, it would be hard to get something much better. So that's why in my head it was over 9.5 because it's, it's going to be hard to beat this album in my opinion, but I definitely, I can see what you're saying there. And I think anything over a nine is, is definitely, um, acceptable so our our overall score for this album which i think is really fair is going to be a 9.5 out of 10 so um definitely a good score there for a great album max why don't you tell us about uh next week's episode and the album that we're going to be getting into sure our next episode we're going to go over the very very new recording called new standards volume one from drummer terry lynn carrington and this album just came out in september of 2022 so we're talking you know a month ago month and a half ago and it features uh, a lot of different players on it including ravi coltrane elena penderhughes which we mentioned um on our last episode you know she was on emmanuel wilkins's album that we went over also players like nicholas payton chris davis um and matt stevens and matt stevens is a he, he's a guitar player that i've actually seen perform live and he's a great player, and I, it's, it's a lot of kind of newer style jazz music, much more modern than Night Train. And so I think it'll be a very different album to listen for and different music to go over. And it's, it's pretty much brand new. So I'm kind of looking forward to digging into Terry Lynn Carrington's new record, New Standards, Volume 1. Yeah, I'm super excited as well. It's something that I have no 
you know, knowledge of. I kind of had some preconceived no notions going into Emmanuel Wilkins. I'd listened to Omega, you know, um, and I kind of knew what the seventh hand was going to be about. I'd read reviews about it. So I'm super excited to listen to this one. I kind of have no, you know, no idea what to look forward to. So that's kind of, that's exciting to be able to listen to something with like a completely, you know, fresh blank slate on it. So yeah, super excited to get into that. Um, before we head out, I want to go over a few things um, at the end of the episode here. First of all, I want to say thanks for listening. Um, we're available on so many different platforms, uh, and we'd love to have any kind of interaction, um, any questions, any comments, anything that you have. You can reach out to us on our Instagram, the Jazz Jam Podcast. You could email us at the Jazz Jam Podcast at gmail.com. Um, those are both great ways to reach out to us. Definitely check out our website. We have our reviews um our overall thoughts and our ratings for every album on our website that'll be linked in the show notes and yeah that's pretty much it we also have a spotify playlist that's all linked so check out the show notes we have a lot of information in there lots of valuable stuff so if you're looking to you know interact with us a little bit more that's a great way to do it so cool uh this has been awesome i knew we were going to get to this album so i'm glad that uh we finally got to it um yeah max any closing thoughts no, I just, I, I don't know if you mentioned it already, but you were talking about all the different platforms we're on. It would be great if people could subscribe to our um, podcast. That way you'll get notifications of new episodes so you won't miss an episode or you'll be reminded to to go back and listen and fast forward through if you want to and, and just see what we think and listen for all the different things you can get out of the albums we're going over. I just appreciate it a lot. And again, we're open to listener questions or suggestions. Please email us at the jazz jam podcast at gmail.com. It'd be much appreciated to hear how we're doing and to hear what you think. And um, it's just, it's just been a, a great experience do that doing this. And I can't wait to do more. You know, we're, we're going to keep going and there's just so much music to go over. It's it's been a real pleasure and I'm learning a lot myself going over these albums with you. Yeah, I definitely agree. I've learned so much. It's cool to see our kind of catalog of reviews start to grow. So I'm definitely looking forward to the future. We do have a YouTube channel as well where we post ours. If you would prefer to listen to it on YouTube, that's all on our website, which is linked in the show notes. So definitely go there and check all that out. Follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, episode 11, uh, Oscar Peterson Trio's Night Train. For Max Levy, I am Dwayne Gunnels, and this has been an episode of the Jazz Jam Podcast. Mm-hmm.